Good morning once again, church, scattered, wherever you are, home, Starbucks, with friends or family. We are glad that you joined us online. I am so thankful that we have the ability to do this. Uh, it's not the same. It's not ideal. Uh, but it does allow us to gather. It does allow us to be able to stay connected as we pray and sing uh, and remember the gospel and hear God's word. And so even if it isn't ideal, uh, it is an act of love to be able to do this uh, in such a way. Uh, I can't give you a hug right now, church, but if I'm on a little screen right now or if I'm on a big screen, this is my virtual hug for you, okay? So big, big hug. Uh, at, at Congress, I think on Capitol Hill, they're doing this, right? Kind of the Spock thing from Star Trek, but um, this is my big hug, okay? Big hug. Uh, all right, I am thankful for this church. Uh, your commitment to Christ and your commitment to the body of Christ is incredible. It really is a testimony to God's grace at work among us. Today we're taking a break from our series in Genesis, and we're going to talk about something that's been on all of our minds. Uh, how should we respond to the current crisis surrounding the COVID-19 virus or coronavirus? How should we respond? That's the question I want to tackle. Or, or even more broadly, if you don't want to talk more specifically, more broadly, how should we respond to situations in life that make us afraid? How should we respond to situations that, that cause fear to well up in us, that cause anxiety, that cause uh, uh, so, something in us to, to, to want to shrink back? What do we do when it seems like we're just waiting for something bad to happen? The message today is fear and hope in times of crisis. And I want to look at a passage in Scripture that, that may be obscure to most of us, uh, it's an account from the Old Testament, an account of one of the kings of Judah. His name is Jehoshaphat. Uh, and Jehoshaphat is a godly king. It's found in 2 Chronicles chapter 20. If you want to turn there now, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. Jehoshaphat is a godly king. Uh, he tears down the, the idols, the places of idol worship. He, he led God's people to worship God and to walk in his ways. He wasn't perfect. He made his share of mistakes. But he learns from them, and he is seeking to govern his people in God-honoring ways. And I, I, I'll be honest, a few weeks ago, as, as this uh, crisis has begun, was unfolding, uh, I came across an article uh, reading lots of medical and scientific articles, but also spiritual articles, and an article referencing this account and this ministered to me so much. This passage has, has, has comforted and strengthened my soul. So, so really, this is a message from my heart. I want to share with you how God has been encouraging me and strengthening me uh, in the last couple of weeks. Uh, and I believe that this story where Jehoshaphat is confronted with a threat that will literally, potentially wipe out all the people of Judah— and how does he respond? How do the people of Judah respond? He is scared, he's desperate, he's helpless. And how he responds to this crisis is incredibly instructive to how we ought to respond in this current crisis. Second Chronicles chapter 20. If you have children with you, have them open their Bibles up. Uh, like Pastor Brady said earlier, take notes. Kids, if you're, if you're taking notes, take out a piece of paper and start drawing pictures of, of what you're reading. If you want to know what to start, draw a picture of a king with a crown and, a royal, and on a royal throne. Okay, just try to stay engaged. Okay, here it is. Second Chronicles chapter 20. It should be up on your screen as well. It says, 
After this, the Moabites and the Ammonites, and with them some of the Muonites, came against Jehoshaphat for battle. Some men came and told Jehoshaphat, A great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hazazon Tamar, that is, En Gedi. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah they came to seek the Lord. And Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah and Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. In your hand are power and might, so that none is able to withstand you. Did you not, our God, drive out the inhabitants of this land before your people Israel and give it forever to the descendants of Abraham, your friend? And they have lived in it and have built for you in it a sanctuary for your name, saying, if disaster comes upon us, the sword, judgment, or pestilence, or famine, we will stand before this house and before you. For your name is in this house, and cry out to you in our affliction, and you will hear and save. And now behold the men of Ammon and Moab and Mount Seir, whom you would not let Israel invade when they came from the land of Egypt, and whom they avoided and did not destroy. Behold, they reward us by coming to drive us out of your possession, which you have given us to inherit. O our God, will you not execute judgment on them? For we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do. But our eyes are on you. Meanwhile, all Judah stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, son of Benaiah, son of Jael, son of Mataniah, a Levite of the sons of Asaph, in the midst of the assembly. And he said, Listen, all Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, Thus says the Lord to you, do not be afraid and do not be dismayed at this great horde for the battle is not yours but God's. Tomorrow go down against them. Behold, they will come up to the ascent of Ziz. You will find them at the end of the valley east of the wilderness of Jeruel. You will not need to fight in this battle. Stand firm, hold your position and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. Then Jehoshaphat bowed his head with his face to the ground and all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. And the Levites and the Kohathites and the Korites stood up to praise the Lord, the God of Israel, with a very loud voice. This is God's word. 
The first lesson that we see here in this text that I want to share with you is this. Trust God with your fears. Trust God with your fears. Here's the context as we read in the beginning of this chapter. The enemies of Judah are marching to make war with them. And we're told in verse 2, it's a great multitude. We're told later in the story that it's, it's a great horde. The language is meant to show us this isn't a small army. It's not just a few people. This is all of, all of Judah's enemies gathering together, compiling together, partnering together to come and destroy Judah. Not just the king, but all the people of Judah. This is serious. People are going to die. And notice how the king responds. Notice what it says. Verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid. You see that? He responds with fear. And before we fault him, before we, uh, before we say, oh man, come on, you're a king. Come on, you're a godly man. How could you have fear? Let me pause and ask, how would you respond? You have the smallest army around. You don't have the kinds of advanced technology like some of the surrounding nations have. You, you don't have the kind of training. You don't have the kind of weaponry. Uh, or, or maybe a better question to ask you is not how you would respond, but how are you responding right now in the fearful situation that we're in? I submit to you that fear is a normal response to a crisis. Jehoshaphat was a godly man. Chapter 17 tells us that. But he wasn't a superhero. He was normal like you, like me, which means he had normal responses to life struggles. Are you afraid of the coronavirus? Are you afraid of how it might affect your life or the people around you, our nation, our world? That's normal. That's understandable. Jehoshaphat feared the impending attack from his enemies, but he wasn't just afraid. Notice, fear is normal. Fear is natural. But look what else he does. Let me read the rest of verse 3. Then Jehoshaphat was afraid and, what? Set his face to seek the Lord. And in fact, in the Hebrew, it, it, the, way it's, the way it's written, it's meant to show us like these two are like so close together. He's afraid and he sets his face. He's afraid and he sets his face. It's like a both end. It's like this and that. They both happen together. He experiences the normal response to the crises of life. Fear. What am I going to do as a leader? What are we going to do as a people? His, his first response is fear. And then immediately his next response is, we got to go to the Lord. We got to seek the Lord. We got to seek his face. We got to go to the one who can help us. He feared and then went to the Lord. In other words, he admitted his weakness. Both those responses show us that he is admitting weakness. If you're going to trust God's help, you must first admit that you need God's help. We must admit our weakness. Do you need to do that today? To just admit that you have weakness. That you need the Lord. Do you need to go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm scared. Or, or, or maybe it's not this, this crisis, but I'm lonely. I'm discouraged. I'm hurting. I'm confused. Um, I feel wounded. 
I feel betrayed, Lord. Jehoshaphat has learned how to deal with fear because he took his fear to the Lord. He was willing to, to trust God in the midst of his fears because the Lord was the one who could help him, who could give him what he needed. Don't, don't, be, don't, be, don't mistake him. This is an emergency situation. All right? It's not like he's drumming up something just to kind of build hype. No, if there was CNN or Fox News or, or MS, MSNBC back then, there would have been 24-7 footage of the enemy hordes marching toward Judah. Right? Right. Now to you, John. I'm here, and I'm here with the Ammonites. Look at that. Look at their military pro, uh, pro, uh, prowess. Oh, look at their weaponry. We don't know what we're going to do. Back to you, Sally. Oh, I'm here on this hill. Oh, good grief. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? Back to you. And it's just been over and over and over again because that's what it's like now, isn't it? It's nonstop. And all the pundits would have been criticizing Jehoshaphat and the people for not taking up arms immediately. What are you guys doing? You, you're calling a prayer meeting? You ought to get ready? You ought to get ready for battle? They would have laughed at God's people and their response. The king calls for the entire nation to fast and to gather for prayer to seek help from the Lord. And it says everyone came together. Why did he do this? Why did he do this? Here's why. Because he knew that dire situations require divine assistance. Dire situations require divine assistance. Will you seek the Lord in your fears today? Will you take your fears to him, church? Will you go to him? And, you know, God doesn't blame Jehoshaphat for his fear response here. God doesn't say, shame on you. Now I'm going to punish you for this. No. In fact, he responds to Jehoshaphat for, with the divine assistance that he and the people needed. Your response to the, to the crisis right now whether it's this coronavirus or anything else going on in your life, your response to this crisis will tell you a lot about your faith. I've heard preachers say, fear and faith cannot coexist. I would say that's not true. Have you ever been afraid and yet still had faith? We all have. We all have fear and faith. Some of us get, get, get so caught up on, oh no, do I have fear? Am I afraid right now? What's wrong with me? How do I get rid of the fear? No, I think first step is acknowledge the fear. Acknowledge that it's real. Jehoshaphat, he's, he's afraid and the Bible records that for us. We're not fooling God when we act like we're not afraid. But what do you do with the fear? That's the question. You acknowledge it. Are you going to God with it? I said fear is normal, but fear is not where our hearts should settle. It may, fear, listen, fear may be our starting point, but it cannot be our ending point. Do you know how many times in the Bible it says, do not be afraid, fear not? Over 300 times. God knows that we needed to hear this commandment over and over and over again because he knows us. He's a good shepherd. A shepherd knows his sheep is going to get lost, but he doesn't like, like get, hey, shame on you for getting lost. No, he goes after and finds a lost sheep and brings it back. God doesn't fault us for having fear. Admit it. Jehoshaphat admits it, and then he does something about it. 
we must combat our fear. Our problem is that we let fear overwhelm our faith. And when that happens, we start to make decisions that are rooted in fear rather than in faith. Listen, you might need some extra toilet paper for the next few weeks. I get it. I get it. But do you need wall-to-wall, floor-to-ceiling toilet paper? Right? I don't know. May, I don't know. Maybe, but probably not. There's probably enough toilet paper and one big thing of toilet paper. It'll last for a few weeks. Probably. Fear or faith. Maybe fear that can lead you to faith. Listen, what we need to do in the midst of our fears is to pursue practices that build your faith even in the midst of your fears. Pursue practices right now, today even. I'm encouraging everyone who's listening, whether you're a member of our church or maybe a friend of you encourage you to join in online and you're listening now and you're like, what do I do? I'm not even a Christian or, or I think I'm a Christian, but I, what do I do? You need to build, you need to pursue practices that build faith even in the midst of your fears. What, what do those look like? You, you need to you talk through it with your family. Talk through it with your friends. Things like praying together. Things like reading scripture, memorizing scripture, allowing scripture to, to, to transform and renew your mind. Maybe it's starting a gratitude journal saying, look, I know everything that's wrong in the world because I turn on any, any media and I'm going to listen to it. Maybe I need to actually write what's, wrong, what's right with God. Maybe I need to continue to remind myself, what is God doing that's good? How is God working? Pursue practices. That's what Jehoshaphat did. Immediately, he calls the people of Judah and he says, we got to pray. We got to pray. Do you see how he not only trusts God with his fears, but he encourages others to trust God as well? Some people around us are having a harder time than others dealing with this crisis. And we need to be intentional about reminding one another about encouraging one another. Point number one is not just trust God with your fears. It's also kind of sub-point, encourage others to trust God in their fears. Be intentional about reminding one another. Call one another up. Reach out to others that you know and, and lovingly remind each other, God is still good, God is still on his throne, and God is still going to care for us. Find ways. I'm begging you, church. Find ways, especially because we're not meeting like this. When we meet on Sundays, it's a prime time to get, get to know what's going on in each other's lives and how can we minister. We, that's been kind of tabled for a time. But that doesn't mean all the rest of the commands of Scripture are set aside. We're still called to pray for one another, bear one another's burdens, meet the needs of one another, confess to one another. Trust God with your fears and encourage others to do the same. Number two, second lesson we learn, call out to God in hope. Call out to God in hope. The people of Judah were in the midst of a crisis, and they prayed. So I can ask you, we are in the midst of a global crisis. How's your prayer life? Are you spending more time on Facebook or social media or Fox News than you are praying? If you are, something is amiss. Something is probably off. Are you spending more time listening to talk radio, whoever your favorite guy or lady is? Are you spending more time listening to them than listening to God and talking to God? 
Are you pleading with God right now to sustain and protect and encourage and heal? If you're not, it's because you're not convinced that God is the one who will get us through. Look at Jehoshaphat's prayer in verses 5 to 12. We can't do, go through all of it. I just, I think it's a model for how we ought to live and pray in, in turbulent times. It's so rich. He focuses on God's character, God's promises, and God's actions. He focuses on God's character, God's promises, and God's actions. And I won't go through the whole prayer, but notice how he starts. Verse 6. He acknowledges God's sovereignty and power. Oh God, are you not God in heaven and rule over all the nations? In your hand are power and might, and none can withstand you. You see that? He, they're in a crisis, and his first thing in prayer is to be reminded and to acknowledge what is God like? What is God's character like? He rules. That's what Jehoshaphat say, says. He rules. God, you rule with great power. Not only that, verse 7 and 8, he recounts God's faithfulness to his people in the past. Aren't you the one who drove out the, the, the inhabitants and brought us to this land? Aren't you the one who made promises to our father Abraham, who, who you called your friend? Notice he wasn't just trusting God to help him against a military defeat. He was trusting God for any disaster that would come. Verse 9 is spectacular. Look at it with me. He says, if disaster comes upon us, and then he lists kinds of the different kinds of disaster. The sword, that's what he's facing right now, but then he blows it up into almost everything. Judgment, or pestilence, or famine. You know what the word pestilence means right here? You see that word in your Bible? You, want to, you can underline that word, circle that word. The word pestilence means a fatal epidemic disease. You say, oh, what do we do in a crisis like this? There's no coronavirus. I can't look at my concordance. It's right here. It's right there. God has not left us uh, searching, empty, with nothing to guide us. He says, listen, if pestilence comes our way, if an epidemic that is now elevated to a pandemic like COVID-19 comes our way, Jehoshaphat says, if disaster comes upon us, I can, I'll broaden it. If, if coronavirus comes upon us, if, if financial ruin comes upon us, if, if sickness comes upon us, if a relational breakup comes upon us, if, if a prodigal child situation comes upon us, if depression comes upon us, if, an el if caring for an elderly parent comes upon us, if, if caring for a special needs child comes upon us, what will we do? Jehoshaphat says at the end of that verse, we will cry out to you in our affliction and you will hear and save. We will keep believing, he says, that you will hear and save. The truth is, he may not save in the way we want. He may not save in the way that we want. In other words, some of us may know someone who gets sick with the coronavirus. Some of us ourselves may contract it. I'm not trying to incite fear. I'm just simply stating a reality. 
Some of us are going to have children with special needs. Some of us are going to have loved ones who get cancer or diabetes or, or, or heart disease. Some of us are going to have prodigal children. Some of us are going to have relational breakup. What then? You see, we're not guaranteed protection from disaster. That's Jehoshaphat's point. He says, if disaster comes upon us, we do not trust God because he is guaranteed to rescue us from all harm in this life. We trust God because he is guaranteed to rescue us from the greatest harm in this life, and that is sin and death. We trust God because he has promised that in all my pain, hurt and shame will be gone when Jesus calls my name. That's what he's promised. That's what we trust God for. And we do trust God that he will ultimately save isn't that what the cross reminds us? Isn't that what the cross symbolizes? Isn't that what Jesus' death definitively proves? That our God saves. I love how Jehoshaphat closes this prayer. Because honestly, this has been my prayer repeatedly now. Ever since I started meditating on this passage this, the, the final sentence of this prayer is what I say over and over again. As, as, honestly, as, you know, as things kind of every day was cha were changing rapidly, and then over the last several days, they weren't just changing daily, but, but every hour, right? Uh, we're talking, the, the pastors are meeting every day. Okay, what should we do? Great, we'll send something out. Great. And then it was like every couple hours, and then it was like every hour, we're on the phone. Okay, who do we need to call? We got, we got, this has been my prayer. He says in verse 12, we are powerless against this great horde that is coming against us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you, Lord. What if that was our prayer today, church? Do you feel powerless today against the coronavirus? Do you feel powerless against the virus that could infect millions of people? If you don't, I would argue you, you're, you might be fooling yourself. No one is immune. We've already seen that. It doesn't matter what part of the globe you live in. We're not immune. It doesn't matter what part of society you live in, a lower or upper part of society. It doesn't matter what kind of home you live in. It doesn't matter what kind of job you have. It doesn't matter what kind of car you drive. It doesn't matter your age. We can get it. If you don't feel powerless, you might be fooling yourself. If you do feel powerless, it doesn't mean you give in to panic or hysteria, as some are. The definition of panic is sudden, uncontrollable fear or anxiety, often causing wildly unthinking behavior. We've seen a lot of that, haven't we? Maybe if you're honest, you've kind of fallen into wildly unthinking behavior. 20 packs of toilet paper, wildly unthinking behavior. Just saying. If you feel powerless, though, let me just say this. If you feel powerless, you are already experiencing the grace of God. You say, what? That's right. If you feel powerless, you're already experiencing the grace of God. Why? Because grace teaches us that we are not in control. It's God's grace when we learn that. We are not in control. That's grace. And whatever it takes to get us to the point where we feel and understand and acknowledge that we're not in control, that's grace. Because then and only then will you experience the grace that also teaches us there is a God who is in control. 
Listen to me. Being powerless does not mean being hopeless. Join Jehoshaphat in calling out to God, saying, although we are helpless, our hope is fixed in God Almighty. Admit you are powerless to overcome the disaster in front of you, and then appeal to the character of God, and rely on the promises of God, and then fix your eyes on the grace of God. We can have hope as we call out to God, hope that God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. And then we see this in the text, that as you wait, remember God's salvation. As you wait, remember God's salvation. We're told in verse 13 that all of Judah was gathered, and it says they stood before the Lord. This phrase is used several times in the Old Testament to indicate uh, when people are humbly waiting before the Lord. We've, they've cried out to God, they've laid their request before the Lord, and they're waiting for Him to respond. They're waiting for Him to act. They're waiting for Him. And so here the Israelites are. They've laid their concern out, poured their hearts out, and now they're waiting. Waiting is, is, is a double-edged sword. They're waiting for the enemy's imminent attack, and they're waiting for the Lord's response. Waiting for the enemy, waiting for the Lord. You see that? Jehoshaphat was afraid, and he sought the Lord. Now they're waiting, and they're waiting. And nobody likes waiting. That was the whole sermon two weeks ago from the life of Joseph. Nobody likes waiting. What do we do in the waiting? It makes us go crazy. Especially if you're waiting for a disaster that seems imminent. Interestingly, waiting is a discipline that God's people are called to cultivate time and time again. God's people had to wait on the Lord as they stood in front of the Red Sea, Red Sea in front of them, Israelites, Red Sea in front of them, Egyptians behind them, And God makes them wait before the Red Sea parts. Esther is called to wait as she approaches uh, the king, King Xerxes, when she unannounced, uninvited, and she has to wait with this agonizing dread, knowing that if he does not hold his scepter out, she dies. And she approaches him anyway, waiting. Will he do it? Will he do it? Will he give me life? Will he excuse this? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego had to wait as Nebuchadnezzar repeatedly called them to bow down to the statue and they wouldn't do it. And they waited and they waited and finally they had to wait as Nebuchadnezzar raised the furnace seven times hotter before they threw him in. And Jesus had to wait in the Garden of Gethsemane as he poured out his blood, sweat, and tears in agony knowing that his betrayal, his beating, and his ultimate crucifixion was imminent. You see, sometimes God delivers in spectacular ways. Like the parting of the Red Sea. Like the protecting of Esther from the king. And we love to hear those stories, don't we? We love those. Those are the ones we love to hear and preach all the time. But what about the stories that don't end with a miraculous deliverance? Like Jesus still having to go to the cross. Like Stephen being stoned in Acts. Here's what I want you to understand, church. What God does in you while you are waiting may be some of the most important work of your life. What if when you look back years later to 2020 and you realize that what God did in your heart 
What God did in your family, what God did in our church was, was some of the richest, deepest, cultivating work that we ever thought possible, that we never knew that we needed. What if that was true? What if this time of waiting is a time where God wants to shape us in ways that, that the mountaintop experience could never shape us? We are waiting for this crisis to make its impact, full impact in our world. How will you respond in the waiting? Your, your response will reveal a lot about what you believe about God, about your own life, about salvation, about this world. If you respond to this crisis right now by screaming for everyone just to calm down, it's not a big deal, then guess what? You're not showing love to your neighbors around the world and in our own community who are experiencing the horrific results and consequences of this pandemic. If you respond by saying, it's too late, we're all doomed, then you've lost faith and hope in God, in the God who can see us through, in a God who's in control and is still good. And if you respond by acting like an expert, you're quoting articles, you're showing graphs as if you know what it, what it all looks like and how we can prevent this, listen, you're revealing a prideful arrogance in matters that honestly we know very little about. How should we respond in our waiting? I don't normally give lists, but I mean, here's just a couple of things. How should you respond right now? Pray, trust God, show compassion, give thanks. These are basic things, but they're incredibly difficult to do in good times, let alone times like this. But this is, what it, this is what the circumstances calls for. This is what life calls for. And beyond that, this is what God calls us to do. Pray, trust God, show compassion, neighborly love to the people around you, and give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. You say, okay, Mark, well then how do I do that? How do we get there in our waiting? As you wait, remember God's salvation. As the Israelites were waiting, God actually responded right here in this text. He responded by sending his spirit to speak to his people through the prophet Jehaziel. Twice he tells them in verse 15 and 17, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. And then he says, the battle doesn't belong to you, it belongs to God. Then he says in verse 17, stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf. Don't be afraid and do not be dismayed. Tomorrow go out against them and the Lord will be with you. In other words, remember these two things. God is with you and God will save you. That's what he's telling them. Remember, Christian, remember these two things. No matter what tomorrow brings, no matter what the government officials are going to tell us tomorrow, no matter what happens to the market tomorrow, no matter what happens to your family tomorrow, no matter what the grocery stores don't have tomorrow, God is with you. God will save you. Do you believe that? Can you trust God enough to stand firm and wait for the salvation of the Lord? We sang earlier, the fight is not my own. These burdens aren't my future. You see, in this story, God did fight the actual battle on behalf of his people. We didn't read the rest of it, but he does. He rescues them from their enemies, and the people, all they have to do is watch as God comes in and destroys the enemies and rescues his people. He gives them a great victory, and he brings peace to the people of Judah. 
But for us, this story is a picture of the bigger spiritual battle that everyone in history has had to endure. For us, as bad as the coronavirus is, as contagious and as fatal as it is, as powerless as we are to fight it, it pales in comparison to the greatest virus that we've ever faced in history, and it's called sin. It's a spiritual virus, and it doesn't just affect some people. It's not even just a pandemic. No, it affects every single human on the planet. And if you're watching right now, whether you're Christian or not, sin, this, this spiritual disease infects every one of us. We know it. We know we can't get around it. We know that's why a lot of us try to do good, try to be good, to try to think uh, maybe I'm not so bad as I, as I think I am or others say I am, but deep down we know we are flawed, we are broken, and try as we might to fight in our own power to find an antidote and to find a cure we find it cannot be avoided it's a poison and it's eating at each of our hearts and that's why we need to remember God's salvation we need someone as Jehaziel says you stand firm and let God fight this battle we need someone to fight this spiritual battle for us someone who can eradicate sin from our hearts. Who can do that? Who can do that? Who can, who can, who can develop an antidote, an antiviral medication like that to take care of all sin, all, all, all effects of sin for all time? Who can do that? We know the answer. Only Jesus can. Only Jesus can, can save us from the greatest threat in our lives, sin and death. So stand firm, hold your position, and see the salvation of the Lord. In other words, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus on the cross. Look to the one who was fully God and yet came down as a man and became fully human. Look to the one who lived a perfect life. He was, he was fully alive, fully human, and he lived a perfect life, the life you and I should have lived but couldn't. Look to Jesus, the one who went to the cross and died the death you and I should have died. Look to Jesus bearing the guilt of your sin and my sin. Look to Jesus, the one who died in your place. Look to Jesus, listen, who intentionally exposed himself to our disease. Do you realize that? On the cross, Jesus contracted our disease, sin, and he contracted it fully, right? And when, when pandemics happen, people are leaving, right? Get away. Don't talk to each other. Don't go to a place where there's an infection. And what does Jesus do? He steps out of heaven and says, I'm going to go right down to ground zero. I'm going to go right down where the infection is the greatest. I'm going to go right down there, and I'm going to be infected myself. You say, what does that mean? 2 Corinthians 5, 21. God made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. He took our sin. He contracted it. He took all of it for all time, for all people. Why? So that by his death, he might take all the consequences of sin as our substitute. He might take it away so that we might receive forgiveness, so that we might receive salvation from sin, and we might receive eternal life as a gift. Do you see... Christian, that if you know this, if you believe this, do you see how that changes both how you live now and forever? 
Jesus has taken away the greatest threat to your life. Period. That means COVID-19 is not the greatest threat to your life. Cancer, diabetes, anxiety, chronic pain, financial hardship, divorce, old age, difficulties at work, those are not the greatest threat to your life. Sin is. And, what, and through Jesus, in Jesus, through faith in Jesus, you've been inoculated from the condemnation that you and I deserved. And that means right now we can live in the light of this freedom. That means if we really understand the gospel, we can know that no matter what happens this week, whether the virus spreads, whether our lives are impacted, well, we don't have to live in fear of this threat. Why? Because we can say with Paul, we can say with Paul, to live is Christ and to die is gain. You see the kind of freedom that brings? We can keep living, keep living for Christ and with Christ and to say to die is gain. Because you know, Christian, that no matter what happens to your body, in Jesus, you have everlasting life in store for you. And that frees you. It frees you to be able to love sacrificially, to give generously, to serve humbly. We're not gathered, but guess what? The needs continue in our church family. We're already getting needs that we've heard hearing of. Can we help here? Can we help out with meals? Can we get this need? Our missionaries are still committed financial support. What if this time when we're not meeting, what if as a church we said, we're not going to allow anything to stand in our way of continuing to give so that we can allow the gospel to go out in word and in deed? And then last point, and this is really quick. We're closing with this. Worship God. As you wait, as you call out to God and remember his salvation, let it move you to worship. Verses 19 and 18 and 19. Notice, after hearing God's word spoken to them, they fell down and worshiped. They trusted the Lord in their fears. They worshiped God before he delivered them. You see that? When you're convinced that God is good, you will worship him even in your suffering. No matter what you might be facing today, you can glorify God. You can show that you believe God is your greatest treasure. And even if all you feel like you can do right now is to say, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are on you, Lord. That's a prayer of faith. That's a prayer of hope. When you can worship God in the midst of a crisis, that's what it looks like to trust him. Worship shows that you're not just waiting for God to act because you know he has already acted. Worship is your declaration that you're remembering God's salvation, both past and future. We worship God because we know that in Jesus, we not only have victory from the greatest threat to our lives, but we have a glorious future waiting for us. Because we know, as we sang earlier, that when we stand before Jesus, no more sin, no more suffering, endless joy, endless praise, all when Jesus calls my name. I'm bound for glory. Church, we have an amazing opportunity right now to show the world what it looks like to live with an enduring, unshakable hope in Christ. Even in our fears, we can call out to him, seek his face, remember his salvation. Even in our fears, we can worship him. And this will lead to this a strange and, and maybe otherworldly hope in God, in a God who is greater than our crisis, a God who is both with us and will save us. Would you join me in prayer? And we're going to close with one final song together. Jesus, we need you.
right now all over this region as people have joined us online as are and are listening your word has gone forth they've looked at your word they've been singing we've been praying together we've been giving we've been reminded that you are a god who saves who is with us so lord this morning i pray that you would encourage and strengthen your people i pray that everyone listening who's a christian a follower of christ that in their fears they might be able to trust and worship you and i pray that those who are listening now who may not know about their eternal destiny who might not know what happens if they are to die today where they're going to go where they spend eternity god if this crisis teaches us anything it teaches us to acknowledge our mortality i pray that everyone right now would come to grips with our mortality our brokenness and our sin that there would be people right now who turn to you in prayer and trust in the finished work of jesus to believe that Jesus died to set them free and accept your gift of salvation. God, it would be a beautiful miracle if you were to bring salvation even now through this medium where we can't meet together and I wouldn't be surprised if you do. You are a great God and you will continue to be great even when life is hard. Oh, the love of our Redeemer. May we know this love and experience it today. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.